0: Hello, my dear thought Volutionists, It's Tuesday, and you know what that means. Hi, I'm your host, Stefan Dubier, and you are right where you need to be. Listening to Thought Thoughtvolution, the podcast where the thoughts of others meet evolving minds. And friends, it is time to evolve a little more. Today, I wonder where you find your inner peace. What is something that calms you down and manages to guide you when the days seem dark and endless? And what is it that silences those voices within, the destructive voices, those telling you that you are bad, inadequate, not worth anything? Imagine being locked away, confined to a small space with nothing more than your own thoughts, your own judgment, and your own inner struggle. We sometimes say we have time to kill, but when you are as alone as my guest will describe being, time could easily kill you drive you crazy, make you lose yourself entirely. Many inmates facing solitary confinement actually experience severe mental damage from that complete isolation. What would you use to escape? Not necessarily from that prison cell, because that would be illegal, but from whatever it is those little inner voices are telling you as you are all alone. For my guest, Balin. His artwork became his armor and it has helped him through impossibly tough periods of his life. Shortly after graduating from high school, Balin became hooked on heroin. And when I say hooked, I really mean it. The hook of that drug pierced much more than just his skin. It pierced his self-worth, his relationships, his entire existence. He ended up overdosing three times before even reaching his 21st birthday. Drug use and crime sadly often go hand in hand. Balin committed nearly a dozen armed robberies. He did time in jail and prison, and especially the time he was forced to spend in solitary confinement was a profound experience he will discuss with us today. What happened within him when he was left to himself entirely? when he was forced to dance with his inner demons without any other human interaction to distract him, without an opportunity to escape from his own reality. Balin will tell us about his art illuminating the pathway out of that cell, out of his past, out of his own head, and about him becoming unstuck in what he had thought to be the life he was condemned to live. Instead of continuing to hurt others and himself, He chose to intentionally change his life, and to use his talent as a lighthouse for his own future and as an inspiration for others. Friends, Balin's story is one about redemption and self-forgiveness, but also about the power of finding your source of peace. For Balin that was art. For you it may be volunteering, focusing on your family, it could be anything really. So my goal today is for us to all find that peace within. Whatever tool or aid it might take. I'm so grateful Balin is here with us today, and I cannot wait for you all to hear his story. Trigger warning. This episode contains conversations about drug abuse, drug use, drug addiction, drug overdose, depression, mental illness, and armed robbery. If any of these subjects are a trigger to you, Please prioritize your mental health and skip this episode. Balin. I am so glad you are here. Prior to us taking a ride on the roller coaster your life happens to be, I would like for us to talk about the last few photos you took with your phone. That may seem a bit random, because it is, but can you tell us what they are and what you associate with them?
1: So the last three pictures on my phone are from... This morning, actually, I woke up, got ready, went out and took the puppy, Obi, took him out on a little hike, uh, a new little hike in town, and uh, just out in the little foothills outside of Los Alamos, took some pictures with him, some of the views, and uh, yeah, it was. the views are nice, blue skies, it's gorgeous out, so yeah, I thought they came out nice. <laughs>
0: Now, I know you were just in Charlotte, North Carolina, not that far from here, visiting family. You have lived in several different places throughout your life. Where do you feel most at home nowadays, and why is that?
1: So I feel most at home these days, just honestly, wherever family is. Right now, Right now I'm living in Los Alamos here in New Mexico. My mom and stepdad are here. I love living here. This is like, this is a dream come true. I have my own space here, you know, I'm starting to put out roots. I'm starting to meet people here in this town and the surrounding areas. So I feel like this is my home now, but yeah, I've lived in multiple or several areas, I should say. And right now this is, this is definitely home.
0: Let's jump into a time capsule and float back to your childhood. What was life like for you growing up?
1: Life growing up for me was was ideal. You know, I had everything I could ever ask for. I had a, I had a great family. My parents were awesome. My sister was great. She's five years younger than me. We had a great household growing up on the North Shore of, on the California side of Lake Tahoe. So growing up, we had, you know, we had everything we wanted. Our, uh, both my parents were teachers, um, so we weren't, like, like wealthy. But, you know, we had, you know, everything we wanted at Christmas. We'd go and visit family. We'd travel, you know, summertime. We, we'd travel. We'd go camping. We'd drive, you know, all over, all over California, all over the country, really. You know, uh, we had a great home growing up. <laughs> That's all I can think of.
0: <laughs> Do you perhaps have a favorite childhood memory, a favorite toy, something that when you think about your childhood you kind of tend to fall back on?
1: So one of my favorite childhood memories was just spending time with family really and and just doing things together, just just all over I, I remember specifically summer times just you know in the forest in the mountains going to the lake even making trips down to the ocean they were great just being together with everybody you know in the car going on those road trips you know getting the getting the tent out starting a campfire somewhere it was great hiking around it was it was great spending time you know with my sister like we always like teased each other but you know we love each other it's it it was We had, we had a, we had a great family growing up, you know, dad took care of us. Mom took care of us. Actually dad worked uh, most of the summer times in the national parks just to make sure we could uh, make ends meet. So yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was good. I feel like I was happy. I was a happy kid really growing up.
0: Sounds like your childhood set you up for success. However, you had told me that your struggles with heroin began shortly after high school. What led to that? And without wanting to trigger you, of course, can you still remember that very first time you used your drug of choice? My first time using
1: heroin, it wasn't it wasn't a sudden dramatic event. There was it was a long time coming. The buildup to it had been going on since since high school i started um just socializing a little bit every once in a while you know i'd be going to a party and maybe have a beer and some kids would have some norcos or some Oxies and we'd we'd eat one or two and we get you know you get a little little head change from it you get a little buzz and and you didn't think anything of it back in the day it was just it was part of the scene i guess so now later more and more people started doing them more frequently there were more of them around these painkillers and uh, we started taking them more and more and around this time they started to become very in demand more more expensive hard to find so one of my friends says hey i know a cheaper way to to get the same high you know because because you don't want to not be high because you start feeling unwell you start feeling sick and having withdrawals and and having some slight detox symptoms so so i said sure let's try this and he brings back some black tar heroin me and my my girlfriend and i we we both uh you know look at each other and we we start doing it we're just smoking it at first it seems it seems uh, harmless until a little bit later our friend uh he uh, brings some home, and he's been he's been uh, using using these drugs with a syringe intravenously for a little while, and we've been watching him. You know, on the side, you can see him in the in the corner room doing it. You know, trying to keep it out of our face. Well, he brings it to us, and and says, "Hey, this is a little bit cheaper. This will get you just as high." And uh, my girlfriend and I look at each other, and you know ask each other, Hey, do you want to do this? And we, uh, I said, sure, let's just do it one time. Let's just try it. And, uh, she agreed with me. She did it. Then I did a shot. And, uh, that was, that was the beginning of it. Really. I I was 18 years old. And then every day after that, just
0: nonstop. When do you think you realized that the hook of being hooked on heroin had become stuck and that you were in fact addicted to that drug.
1: The moment I realized, I I knew that I was addicted was was probably very very early on, before I even put a needle in my arm, before I even really even started smoking heroin. It was it was even before that. It was the painkillers. It was the habit. It was the it was the uh, the ritual of. In in some cases, literally getting down on your knees every day so you can, you know, cook up or crush up or just prepare your drugs, you know, that ritual. And then going through the process of ingesting them, however that ritual goes, it becomes, it becomes like a, a such a habit, more like a religion, like something you have to do or you'll die, you know, or you'll be sick, or your life will fall apart, or everything will just collapse around you. Like, you know, there's an anxiety that happens if you miss, you know, a hit or or a couple, you know, a couple hits. It's it, it was it was early when I know when I knew it was happening. It was uh, I knew I was I was in for a long ride because I I wasn't ready to stop. Part of me enjoyed it. Part of me enjoyed the thrill of it, the rebellion of it. You know, I I, I, I kind of liked living on like the edge, the fringe, having this like this little, you know, just this this rebel in me that that didn't care that like I knew I was doomed, but I was doing it anyway. That's that's when I knew.
0: You were trying to rebel. What were you trying to rebel against? Were you unhappy with society as a whole? was there something else that bothered you that you just wanted to protest your own way i
1: had this rebellious streak in me from from growing up in such such like a controlled such a such an idyllic life like everything was so great everything was so perfect part of me didn't didn't like it because it, you know it, it just didn't it didn't sit right with me i didn't feel comfortable in it I just felt like there was there was more to life than that, maybe. There was a lot of curiosity about like, oh, what is, you know, what are these drugs about? Like, what does that feel like? What does this feel like? So I feel like that's the rebellious streak that would that was kind of coming through. It was from, you know, not being able probably to express myself in a way that I thought was okay, that I thought was you know, genuine, maybe, you know, I was always told I had to do, had to be doing my homework, had to be, you know, going to my, my practices, my sports. There was a lot of living up to expectations for myself. There was, you know, I had all this potential. I had all these gifts. I had to take advantage of them. I had to, you know, it was, it's something that had to be done. So, you know, that, that part of me was like, maybe I don't
0: have to. You mentioned three overdoses. Some people don't even survive one overdose. I can't even imagine being given three second chances. Can you tell us about rehab, your relapses, the overdoses, and what each of those overdoses changed within you?
1: Looking back on my addiction, the overdoses, the the rehabs, it was, it was a, it was a very difficult addiction. I feel like more times, more time than not, I was, I was sick. I was detoxing. I was experiencing withdrawal symptoms most of the time. Um, looking back, you know, there, there were obviously, you know, the highs where I was gone out of my mind, I was asleep, you know, I was passed out you know, but most of the time I was miserable, most of the time I was sick, I was just trying to make it to the to the next dose, to the next hit so I could feel normal, not even get high anymore, but just to feel normal. Just getting back to a feeling of normality became what the entire what your entire existence is about, what you that's all that's all you live for. There's the overdoses, the first overdose. I went, I was living in Monterey, California. I went to Salinas with my girlfriend and a couple friends. We go down to the shady part of the town, park in our little spot around the corner. You know, we get out of the car, we go and find somebody who's selling heroin. We go down, it's across the train tracks, you know, there's... You know, it's it it used to be bad in this part of town. Um, I don't know if it is now, but we'd go there. We would get our dope, just enough, really just just enough to get high, not even enough to 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 get us through for multiple days or weeks because we we didn't want to be doing this for a long time. We wanted this just to be the last time. So we would go and just get enough for a day. Sometimes maybe two at the most. So, you know, the the goal always in mind is just to go and get enough to to be well, just to be able to function, just to be able to go to work and earn my paycheck. You know, I'm just trying to function like a normal person. And uh, unfortunately, I have to go down, you know, to the shady part of town and, and pick up my medicine is what it feels like every day. So I go and pick it up for the last time, I think. And uh, it's from this new person I've never seen before. So, you know, in, in some of the literature, some of the harm reduction guides that they, that they give to uh, addicts, they say, you know, make sure you test your new dope. And uh, I always did that. Anytime I got a new batch, I would just do a tiny little amount just to, just to see how strong it is, just because you don't know. It's just that fact. It's scary. It's it's a chance, you know, you take. So you just gotta you have to test it. So I I prepared prepared my heroin, cooked it up. I did my shot and immediately I knew it was I knew it was too strong. I could feel it just hit me way too fast. I turned to my girlfriend next to me, sitting beside me in the car. I say, I think I did too much. And I was out, just gone. I wake up. The EMTs, the first responders are there, oxygen on me. They just got done, I guess, performing CPR. My chest hurts. I guess I hadn't been breathing. I've been gasping for air, Uh, started changing colors. My lips were blue, purple, or something. They load me up into the ambulance. We go to the hospital. While I'm there, the police officer that watched the whole the whole uh, first responder scene happen He followed us to the hospital and arrested me while I was sitting in the hospital bed. So there I was, sitting in the hospital, handcuffed to the hospital bed. I'm sitting there. I'm 18 years old. I'm scared. I'm I'm sick, and I don't know what's gonna happen. The police officer officer says, well, "You know, we're taking you to county jail where I go and get processed in." So the the other incidents of overdoses one of the times i had just again driven to salinas to go and score my my medicine for the day just to get me well and i couldn't even drive back home because i was so i was so sick i i you know the sweating the nausea the pain in your bones in your back you know the chills it was like a fever mixed with the flu and it just it's it's miserable. So I couldn't I couldn't function. I couldn't drive back, you know, thirty minutes. So I had to pull over again. I had to test my heroin. Um, I tried it out and immediately fell asleep. It must have been four or five hours later. I wake up and I'm gasping. There's you know drool all over myself. I realized I had I hadn't been breathing for the last however many hours it was rough but then i had to get back home and get back to work the the final overdose was probably the worst i was staying with my girlfriend at the time at her parents house i was staying in one of their guest bedrooms i was i was feeling just just kind of a little a little dangerous that day i was feeling a little uh a little brave so you know i thought this time when I get high, I'm not just doing it to get well. I'm not just doing it to, to feel normal this time. I just wanted to see how, how high I could get without overdosing. This is the kind of thoughts that I had in my mind when I was sick, you know, when I was, when I was in my addiction. So I, I pulled up, I pulled a big shot up and, uh, it was more than I usually do. And I remember my girl saying to me, she said, she said, I think that was too much. And I blacked out. That was the last thing I remember. Until I woke up, first responders, you know, oxygen. I had Narcan. When when you get when you get hit with Narcan after an overdose, you immediately go into detox, into withdrawal. So it hurts. You're in pain. It's 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 like a it's like a, a seizure. It's like it's a, it's like an electric almost heat just going through and burning through your body. So it hurts coming back. From an overdose, being in that unconscious state. I remember, you know, falling asleep. It was, it was just like falling asleep. It was peaceful, you know? And I don't, I don't say that to glorify it. I just mean, you know, I had, I had reached like a high that I hadn't reached before. And I felt like, you know, when I, when I was waking up, like, okay, that's enough for me. I'm done. I want to get out of this for real this time you know this is it i can't i'm not going to survive another overdose that was my third one that was it i don't want any more problems with with this drug that was that was too close
0: as i had said before sadly drug use and crime often go hand in hand can you tell us about your criminal past the armed robberies and what headspace you were in when you did what you did
1: my criminal past began you know uh, when i was 18 waking up from the overdoses and having to do jail time from that point on i was always on probation always under supervision i was having to go check in and see my parole officer probation officer having to drug test for them having to attend rehabs or um, inpatient outpatient counseling this and that. Um, you have to jump through a lot of hoops, paying fines. There's, there's a lot you have to do. There was a long stretch where I gave it 110%. I was, I would have told myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get off of probation, put it behind me, get it, out, get it off my record. And uh, I, I wasn't finished with my addiction. You could say I was still in recovery. I relapsed. I tested dirty. I would do, you know, a few days in jail as as punishment or, you know, probation would punish me in one way or another. So I would rebel. Um, it was a, it was like a cat and mouse game, just just going back and forth, trying to 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 work a job while still going to, you know, hours and hours of meetings every week, as well as, you know, all these other mandated activities. It gets tiring. I got tired and then the relapses kept happening. I couldn't I couldn't quit. I couldn't get clean for for long enough. So, you know, I kept having to extend my probation time. It kept being extended over and over longer and longer. So there was no end in sight. You know, I felt like when I was, you know, 20, 21, 22, I was basically just trying to survive by just you know, not getting caught. I was just trying not to get arrested by my PO, trying not to get pulled over in in, in any instance. Now, the first time I went to prison was in California. I was 20 years old and my probation had been revoked so many times. The the court system finally said, enough is enough. We're going to send you to prison. For two years, they uh, let me out with you know, a half time, good time. So I got out after a year. When I got out, I moved down to New Mexico briefly and then moved up to Portland with the girl that I had met. We, we moved to Portland. I was working up there for a while, I was working at doing hardwood flooring, um, some construction. The entire time I was living there, I was doing heroin, I was on Suboxone, methadone, I was just doing all kinds of opiates. This this girl and I had met through a mutual friend that was that was into drugs. So so that was all that we had in common. Really, we were we were using every day. It was heroin. It was a little bit of cocaine. We were we were shooting it up every day. It was it was getting really expensive. Eventually, I got fed up with my job doing hardwood floors and and uh, I quit. I broke up with my girl my girlfriend we we split up at this point I'm going through some pretty heavy withdrawals some some detox is pretty bad I'm, I'm you know shaking sweating can't can't see can't think you know the pain is is bad I'm sitting there and I look across the street at a Shell gas station I, I see the attendant go into the bathroom and I think man I can just run over here, open the register, grab the money. And that's exactly what I did. I ran across the street, ran in there, opened the register, and he came out of the bathroom. He, he looked at me. He said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I said, back the fuck up or I'm going to shoot you. Because I was so sick. I was so lost in my, in my addiction, so gone. He got scared, ran off. I got away and I had enough money to, to keep me well for a few days. It wasn't to get high. I wasn't enjoying this. You know, I was, I was trying not to. I was, I just wanted to get some sleep. You know, I hadn't slept in weeks. You know, I just wanted to, to breathe like a normal person and relax and sit still and, and just, just be at peace finally, you know. And I, and I was that for a couple of days. Then I ran out of money again. And I thought that was too easy the first time. Why not try it again? And again, and again, and again, it was just too easy. And all the while I'm thinking, I'm I'm going to get caught. I know I am. It's just, it's going to happen. You know, I'm not going to get away with this. So, you know, in my mind, I'm preparing myself for going to prison, going to jail. I'm, I'm thinking that's where I'm going to be. So, so why not just do another one? Why not do another robbery? Ends up being, I think, eleven of them. On one of the, one of the last ones, the, uh, the cashier working at this gas station that I just robbed, he had, he followed me maybe two blocks back to my car without me knowing. Saw, you know, saw my license plate, took a picture or something. That's how I got my information. And then a Crime Stoppers, you know, anonymous tip said I was at this place at this time. And uh, yeah, so July 3rd, 2012, I wake up pretty early. I think I had just slept for like an hour, ran out of dope again. Um, I'm sick. I'm miserable. I'm, I'm going through it. I call my dealer. I say, I'm on the way. I have to drive across Portland, across town. So I said, I'll be there in a little bit on my way over there, I see an unmarked police sedan in front of me. And I think, okay, I got to drive careful. You know, I'm on the run, probably looking for me. I couldn't go around the, the sedan. I, there was, you know, the traffic was blocked on either side. And I look behind me and there's a, an unmarked SWAT truck. And I'm, I'm like, okay, the light turns green. We start moving forward. I get pinned in. And that's when the, the canines come out, the, you know, the SWAT team comes out, you know, they told me to put my hands in the air, get out of the car, get on the ground. At that moment, I was thinking in my mind, I, I, I was thinking I'm I'm fast. I'm a fast guy. I might be able to, to outrun some of these some of these guys, but there were there were way too many. It was I knew it was over. So I got out, laid down, and uh, that's when they arrested me.
0: I know your life has changed greatly since and we will talk about prison and solitary confinement and the moment you decided to turn a brand new page in a little while. Have you since asked the people you hurt in your past for forgiveness and have you truly and fully forgiven yourself yet?
1: So looking looking at my past and all the all the destruction that that came with it you know i was there were there were many people that i came in contact with that i had relationships with that you know was friends with and got to know and they're excellent people so many people and and i and i hurt them you know either by you know stealing from them lying to them or just you know anything that i may have done before like since then yes i've 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 reached out to several many individuals and asked for forgiveness and I have to make amends with with them every day, you know. It's a daily it's a daily process for me. It's a it's a routine I have to go through and check myself on is is forgiving myself for being just just for making such poor decisions, you know, that making decisions that I knew were were bad but did them anyway, making decisions that I didn't want to do, but I had to, I felt like, you know, there's, there's no excuses for anything, but it's, it's hard forgiving yourself. I feel like that's probably the hardest. It's easy to go up and ask someone I feel like, but there's a lot of people that I wish I could go back and, uh, say, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I'm very, very sorry. Like the, the things I did were inexcusable and I apologize, you know,
0: take us back with you to prison. What was life like for you and who did you have to rely on while you were behind bars? You did time in California and Oregon. Were those experiences different?
1: My time in prison was was tough. There were some very, very difficult times. My first time in California was, was very brief. I ended up only doing a year. I knew a lot of the people I was in there with. It felt kind of, at, when I first walked in, it was terrifying, you know? After a while, you start, you start meeting people and, and talking about stuff. And, and you start, you start actually having fun. I actually had fun in California prison, which, which sounds insane. But you know, the, even the time in, in segregation down there, we were, you know, we were fishing, we were, we were pulling a string underneath our doors so we could like smoke weed in there. We were, uh, we were, everybody was getting high. We were like partying the entire time fights every day, you know? So that part of it was scary. There were, there was a couple riots in there where it was, it was probably like a a hundred or so people. And, uh, you know, we had weapons, all sorts of stuff. I got, you know, hit my face a couple times. I was, you know, lip busted open. And, and there were times when I like would black out from being hit so hard, you know, so many times I just, I can't even remember, can't even keep count. But, uh, but then after that, our, our homeboys, our friends, the, the guys that, that we were, you know, that we had things in common with, we would, we would help each other up and make fun of each other and, 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 uh, you know, dust each other off afterward. It was, it was like a coming of age, like a, almost like a, a process of growing up so i didn't learn anything i didn't learn a lesson in there i didn't get anything out of that all i learned i learned how to become a better criminal in california when i was younger and in, in the prison down there it was it wasn't it wasn't good um, they're not rehabilitating rehabilitating people in in prison in california you have you have very few opportunities to to better yourself, to get into a program, and and to to get like a license or, or a certification. They do have those programs, but the prison population is just way too large to to be able to be able to rehabilitate with the amount of money that they're putting into programs right now. Um, as far as building construction technology, HVAC, plumbing, electricians, these are all certifications that. That people should be getting all the time in there but you know with the politics in there with with the fighting with the with the general culture of of not giving a fuck, of saying like oh i'm in california prison now i'm i'm a gangster i made it i'm hard it's it's ridiculous it's it's backwards it's uh it's disgusting but and it's and it's only getting worse really now fast forward to my time in in Oregon. Now I did a lot more time up there so I got to know that system a little better. I was in only in three California prisons I was in four Oregon prisons so I can only really speak to what you know happened in those places. So while I was in Oregon things were much different. The things that were the same were were the facilities, the officers, the administration those those kind of things are generally the same okay you know everything's controlled everything's monitored you're you're not getting away with anything everything's under a camera in you know and in oregon the the politics up there are are more laid back and when i say politics i mean the the self-imposed uh guidelines for the inmates themselves okay politics are different so it's it's less about you know the california culture of like partying and and fighting and you know committing more crime in oregon it's it's a little more it's a little more structured it's a little more rehabilitative actually they have a few more programs they have more opportunities for people to turn their life around if if they apply themselves one of the first things you do when you get there is go to your cell you meet your cellie. you you get into a a work program you can get into usually it's the kitchen the cafeteria the dining room to start out where you're an orderly um like a janitor on a unit these are the beginning jobs that you get and and these jobs pay very little i'm talking about like max max is like 30 dollars a month okay and and most of these guys don't have Family or a support system. I was very, very fortunate to have my family who, who most of them were with me the entire time. They, they wrote me letters. I was able to call them on the phone anytime. I got visits every once in a while, you know, come and, come and see me. So I was very fortunate to have letters coming in. You know, I had mail. These are things that, that you can't take for granted in there because most people don't have. A support system like that so they resort to just hustling or committing minor crime in prison just to be able to to make ends meet to be able to feed themselves a little bit clothes clothe themselves with some decent shoes some shirts Oregon prison was 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 okay all prison is horrible let me let me just set that straight let me just let me just set that in stone it is it is horrible. It is devastating. It is I wouldn't wish it upon my my worst enemy. It's 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 a place no one wants to be. Oregon was just a little bit less so.
0: You told me that the time alone in solitary confinement was a life-changing experience for you. Can you explain that to us? What did you learn and how did you keep yourself from quote unquote going crazy?
1: My time in solitary and confinement in prison was it was life-changing i guess that's the one word we can put on it i was in segregation and multiple times in prison i was in seg three times for various assault charges um, one of the times was over a discrepancy playing cards another one was because i was put into a a, a cell with someone who had allegedly ratted or told on someone else and he had to be taken care of so to speak so i had to assault him or i would be assaulted essentially that's just like a, a, a daily thing you know those those situations come up all the time it's normal i'd say that another time it was just a, another fight for uh just a disagreement over or it wasn't a disagreement it was over disrespect someone you know came up to me and you know, was angry about something started calling me names like bitch and punk. And and those are, those are, those are no, no words in prison. You don't, you don't say those, those words to somebody, you don't say, the, say those words to their face and not expect problems. So <laughs> if you don't uh, fight them for calling you a bitch or a punk, then you essentially get labeled a, a bitch or a punk in prison, and your time from then on would become absolutely miserable. You become a pariah, uh, an outcast. nobody would help you with anything, give you anything. Nobody would have your back if it came to a physical altercation. Um, so you have to stand up for yourself. you have to have some self-respect, I guess they, they say, you know these are the, this is the, the mindset in there. When you get into a fight immediately, immediately, I'm talking about less than 20, 15 seconds, the the officers, the corrections officers are there on the scene. There's three, four, five of them immediately running in, screaming, stop, get down, stop fighting, screaming this. And, uh, and if you don't stop, they start spraying you with, with pepper spray or whatever chemical they have. And they, you know, they proceed to like wrestle you down and and cuff you up put you in handcuffs and and escort you to segregation when you get to segregation you get stripped out they you know take off all your clothes every single piece you know turn around do a 360 hands up in the air bend over squat cough show us your your ass cheeks all this this is this happens every time you go to segregation Or anytime they want, anytime the the CEOs want to do a search, this is what happens. You you learn to be okay with being naked in front of grown men. It's it's insane. (laughs) It's degrading. It's uh, it's demoralizing. It's dehumanizing. I feel like. So once you change into your your little uh, segregation jumpsuit, you get that. You get your bedroll. Just uh. It's a sheet and a mattress and you, you go to your, your single cell. Now it's a, it's probably a, an eight by 10 or 12 foot cell. There's a concrete or metal bunk, lay down your mattress on there, make your bed for the night and settle in. burn <laughs> an salt you're looking at 180 days, that's six months. You're doing six months in there and all you get is your mattress. Um, you get your, your mail, your letters, you get your books. Aside from this, don't expect anything else. That's, that's all you have coming your entire six months in there. So, so it was, it was difficult at first you just sit, then you start pacing. You start, you start thinking, you, you do a lot of thinking in solitary. A lot of pacing back and forth, just counting your steps wall to wall, you know, bouncing off the walls. It's cold in there. They, they don't turn the temperature up. They're not looking out for your comfort. You know, they keep it a nice chill, you know, probably 50 something, 60 degrees. It's always, it's always chilly. So you're pacing just to kind of stay warm, just to keep the blood circulation going in your fingertips and your toes. Uh, my, my fingers are getting numb just thinking about it still right now. And you might sit down and get bored. You sit it, you know, you sit on your mattress or sometimes they'll have a little desk there. I was very fortunate to have a desk in my in my cell. So in, in all three of the instances where I was in segregation, I, I would just sit down. They would give you paper and a pen, a little pen filler. Not even the not even the entire pen, just the inside that, that holds the ink. And the little ballpoint. That's all you get. You know, you can fashion yourself, you know, a real pen by rolling up real paper and you know <laughs> sticking it together and and everything. Your imagination starts starts wandering. You start thinking of all the different things you could do in this small confined space just to just to pass your time, you know, because because some people some people work out. Some people do push-ups, sit-ups, you know, squats all day. That's all they do all day. You know, (laughs) I did so many push-ups, my, my shoulders started hurting my back, everything. Um, burpees, the burpee, uh, routines were insane in there. We would get, you know, up to 10, 20 people yelling out their doors down the tier, doing their workouts together. A lot of people would be yelling out the door, just talking to their friends all day. So it was loud. It was cold. It was loud. It was lonely. In fact, I I, I got a journal. I started journaling in there and I wrote down. I started journaling every day just to keep my, my mind fresh, just to not lose my sanity. And uh, I wrote this on Thursday, May 1st, 2014. In disciplinary segregation unit 13 up in Oregon wrote at 8 p.m. I wrote, this place is wearing down on me. The noise, the yelling, shouting, slamming, pounding, laughing, shit talking, it's all making me physically tired. My bones and joints ache mentally. I'm struggling to maintain a grasp on reality, goals, perspective, and straining to uphold my being, my identity. The scaffolding is collapsing. It's out of my hands now. The only thing keeping me afloat now is God. So, you know, I opened my Bible all the time. That was that was where I found some hope, some inspiration. And I would sit with my pen and my paper and I would write and I would draw. And I started drawing and my imagination would just would just take me out of there. So I started drawing. And uh, very soon after that, like within a few weeks. <laughs> Of drawing every day I had pages and pages of you know drawings (laughs) and I knew I knew I I said this is this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my time to to make it easier for myself I'm gonna work with my hands you know I'm gonna make something I'm gonna create I'm not I'm not destroying anymore you know I'm 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 going to somehow give back you know I'm gonna turn this around (laughs) I'm gonna use this time is endless time you know a year and a half in in segregation is nothing but time so i you know i picked up the pen and i started i started drawing it was my escape it was my therapy it was my way to communicate with people on you know my family i'd send them cards you know birthday gifts you know wedding gifts uh, all sorts of stuff you know for friends family people in there Started noticing. Uh, so they would request cards for their you know wives on the streets or you know so I just it just became a daily thing and I just been doing it daily ever since it's 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 the only thing that kept me sane I think between the letters from family and my Bible and drawing that's that's how I made it through there, I believe
0: <laughs> I spoke earlier about inner peace and comfort. It may seem impossible for some of our listeners to even imagine that prison of all places could open one's eyes to that. What are your thoughts?
1: I believe I, I found my inner peace in that place, in segregation, when, when I was, you know, so cut off, so isolated, literally isolated from everything. You know, I had absolutely nothing but myself like I had to look at myself and 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 even deeper than that I had to look deeper into myself you know I couldn't I, I couldn't keep doing this I couldn't keep going to prison and and segregation like it was you know it was taking its toll on me I was I felt like I was dying so so then when I sit and I start drawing i start writing i start i I get into my zone i i I, you know it's like a meditation i i I escape for a bit and it's it's very difficult to to focus on what you're doing when there's when there's fights happening around you when there's somebody's shot on the yard um for, for getting in a fight there's there's so many things there's so many distractions uh you know somebody's bullying or somebody's talking shit you have, like you have the choice i think to you have the choice of how you're going to react to anything that happens to you so you know when i'm sitting there i'm thinking how am i going to react to this how am i going to use this time to better myself and it just it, it just had to happen that way i feel like it it uh i don't, I don't even know
0: Tell us about your artwork and what your intentions are behind the art you now create.
1: So when I'm drawing, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, I'm looking for something outside of the ordinary, outside of what we have going on in our everyday lives. I'm trying to add to that by adding, adding beauty, you know, I'm trying to just try to make, make my life a little bit better I guess more pleasing to look at you know I enjoy flowers I enjoy nature there's there's something beautiful about God's creation and just just you know the universe everything so I like to combine that with the beauty you can find in in someone in a person you know there's there's a lot of parallels between you know rebirth and growth and springtime and the seasons and in someone's life you know there's a lot of parallels we are part of nature so i'm always drawing that i'm always referring to that when i'm when i'm drawing and and i generally try to illustrate themes of hope and and a little bit of just just a little bit of positivity i'm just trying to just trying to make things a little bit better you know not just for me but for anybody else that's that's looking at it if they can connect to it that's that's amazing. That's, you know, that's wonderful. I hope, you know, I hope they, my drawings heal. I hope, you know, they heal me. So they have to, I feel like they have to heal someone else, you know, just, man, I want everybody to see them. I want to share that because it's part of my story and uh, yeah, I just, I just, I care for other people. So, so spending so much of my life in, addiction and crime it was too much negativity for me i just it was it was beginning to get almost suicidal like i was on a suicide mission so so drawing essentially saved me from that it kept me it gives me hope it's like okay i have something to build tomorrow i'm 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 building this skill i'm i'm a, i'm growing i'm not dying anymore <laughs> i, I od three times like i'm trying to I'm trying not to do that. I'm trying to do the opposite now. I'm trying to live three times, you know.
0: If I gave you a pencil with an eraser on it to use for your own life, is there anything you would change and rewrite? And if so, what would that be?
1: If you were to give me an eraser, I'm I'm not sure that I would go back and and change much about my past. Right. There were there are many things, many horrible, bad decisions where I should have made a different decision, but I didn't. And I subsequently learned from that. I, I feel like I grew from that. Unfortunately, people were hurt in the process. And that's the part that I would go back. And erase, is is my relationships, the people that I came across in my life, the people that I interacted with on a daily basis, you know, friends, family law enforcement, anybody, victims, passerbys on the street. I would, I would go back and reevaluate how I interact with people. I want to be a a positive, a positive change in someone's life. I just want to be like, I don't want to be a detriment to society anymore. I'm trying to, to change that. And I feel like I've always been that way since I was a child, you know? So there were, there were many mistakes along the way in relationships and and I would go back and edit a few of those.
0: Now we clearly do not have a crystal ball. Neither you nor I can predict the future, but where do you hope for your own journey to continue?
1: I would hope my journey continues in this direction I'm going now. I'm I'm trying to I'm an artist, you know. I'm, I feel like I am that in in my heart. That's my passion. That's what I live for, you know that's what brings me peace and it keeps me sober and it and it helps me give back to others so so i would say you know i'm trying to build in that direction i'd like i'd like to help people coming out of prison i'd like to help recovering addicts if i could get a nonprofit started i'd love that but right now this is this is really really difficult what i'm doing right now coming out of prison after 10 years and and i have I have everything I need right now. I'm. I have. I'm. I'm taking care of. I. I have a. I have work. I have a place to live. I have a roof over my head. I have food. I'm. I'm. I'm okay. There's. There's millions of people walking out of prison that that don't have this. And and if it's this difficult for me to fit to to re assimilate back into society, if it's this difficult for me, and I have all of this, uh, you have all these tools. I can only imagine how difficult it is for the people that don't have these tools. And, and there's too many of them. And I'd like to to change that. Change that. I just talked to one of my friends the other day, yesterday, actually. And he, he just got out recently, I'd say in the last month or so. And he's up in the Portland metro area. He doesn't have the resources. He's homeless right now. He's struggling to stay clean because he's so stressed out about where he's going to live. He didn't have the opportunity in prison to to get his license or certification or anything. That that opportunity was never afforded to him while he was in prison. So now, while he's out, he's struggling, and and I, I feel that struggle. And I'm just trying to I'm just trying to survive honestly. And the only way I know how to survive, the way I learned how to survive. Was, was when I was in segregation. And, and the way I survived was by drawing every day. That's how I get through my days. So I'm just gonna keep doing that, working and trying to be a positive influence.
0: Balen, first of all, thank you so, so, so very much for this interview, for this conversation. I really appreciate you, your openness and your courage to talk to me today. Now, if people would love to learn more about you and your art, how can they get in touch with you? If someone
1: wants to get in touch with me, I tell them absolutely. Feel free to reach out. I'm always, I'm, I always welcome questions. I love you know talking to people about recovery and and prison, you know, reform, everything. So you know, I'm always available on Instagram, Balen Parada, or on Facebook, Balen Parada Art, or you could email me. Balin's piece at gmail dot com, or you can see all my artwork on on there, too,
0: Wow, thought evolutionists. I am speechless, <laughs> and that is saying something. What a captivating conversation. It took Balin three overdoses and countless hours in segregation to find his inner peace. And to now, finally, after everything he had to experience, have the will to live with the intensity of three lives and to, in a way, make up for what he missed. Human resilience is such a wonderful and beautiful thing to witness. If you are still stuck in a life of drugs or crime or uncertainty, I want you to know something. You are more. You are more than your addiction, than your pain, than your struggles, your fears or worries. We all have potential, we all have beauty and value and importance that we can contribute to this world in our own ways. I wish you well and I hope that you will discover your own peace as it is only when we find that true inner peace that we are able to turn destruction into creation, that we find the substance needed to rebuild ourselves. So. As long as you breathe, you have the ability to tap into your own potential. Sometimes it's about finding the gateway to peace, and that could be anything. Remind yourself of your self-worth, your abilities, and your indestructible strengths. Balin ended up finding his peace in the creation of art. For you, it could be anything that sparks joy, that calms you down, that allows you to just be you without the need of drugs, stimulation, or sensation. Just be. Without judgment, hurt, or the need to convince anybody of anything. I urge you to take a peek at Balan's art. He is super talented, and each piece he creates tells its own unique story. To take a look at his work, please check out the show notes and visit his website, BalansPiece.com. That is b-a-y-l-e-n-s-p-e-a-c-e.com. If you have questions for Balin, any of our other guests, or yours truly, please visit our website, thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, that is thoughtvolutionpodcast.com, or call us at 864 501 That's 864 501 I cannot wait to hear from you and perhaps you even find time to fill out the intake form on our website and to take the first step towards becoming a guest yourself. Of course, I would also love for you to check out our merch store on our website to get yourself some of the kindest and coolest Thoughtvolution swag. That's thoughtvolutionpodcast.com for you. And as always, talk to your friends about our podcast, share, comment, like, and subscribe on all large podcast platforms, as well as on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You have no idea how much your contribution matters and what a difference it can make in my life and the lives of our amazing guests. My message for you today is to please start loving yourself more. The only person you will spend the entirety of your life with every single moment of it is you. And that is powerful, because it also means that the opinions of others really don't mean that much after all. I love you Lazis, and I cannot wait to talk to you again next week. Have some peaceful and serene days, and while you do that, always be kind to each other.